Welcome to an audio stream from San Marino Community Church, featuring our own pastoral staff and various guest speakers. Wow, what a wonderful anthem. Thank you very much to the Summer Quartet. Before I read the scripture, I just want to say briefly what an honor and privilege it is for me to be at San Marino Community Presbyterian Church today. I'm a longtime friend of your pastor, Jeff O'Grady, and in my book, Jeff O'Grady is one of the finest pastors I've ever known. He has the quality, not only of a deep faith in Jesus Christ, but he has authenticity and integrity, and the guy rings true. Don't tell him I said this about him because I don't want him to get a swelled head. (laughs) But he is one of the very best, and you are blessed to have him. The Summer Quartet just sang this wonderful anthem, which is part of the sermon series for this summer, when we're talking about people who have built their lives not on sinking sand, but who've built their lives on the solid rock of the God revealed in Jesus Christ. And we see some examples of that in our scripture passage this morning from the ninth chapter of Matthew. Remember that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell this story. And if you want a little longer version of the story, you might go to Matthew chapter 5, or you might go to Luke chapter 8 later today and read the longer version. But this is Matthew's more succinct version. Don't let the brevity fool you. This passage has the power to change our lives. While Jesus was teaching his disciples and saying these things to them, Suddenly, a leader of the synagogue came in and knelt before Jesus, saying, My daughter has just died. But come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus got up and followed him with his disciples. Then suddenly, a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years came up behind Jesus and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be made well. Jesus turned and said to her, take heart, daughter. Daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. When Jesus came to the leader's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping, and they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, Jesus went in and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. And the report of this spread throughout that entire district. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, pour through me the gift of preaching this morning, that these words might not be my words, but by a miracle of your grace, these words might become your living word to us. And we know they will be, O God, for we pray with anticipation and boldness in the strong name of Jesus, the risen Christ. Amen. Interruptions are a part of every one of our lives, aren't they? Every day of our lives, every hour of our lives, we're constantly being interrupted by someone or by something. 
Have any of you ever sat in traffic on the LA freeways for an hour and your day has been completely interrupted? Have you ever had sleep interrupted or work interrupted by the needs of a child? Have you ever had the plan A of your life interrupted by some circumstance and you had to go to plan B in your life? I was teaching a class and asked that question some time ago. It was simply a rhetorical question, but a woman blurted out right in the middle of the class, plan B, I'm on plan G, H, and I. <laughs> and the advancements in technology make it clear that every one of us is being interrupted by text messages and by little interruptions, by emails and by phone calls. And the advancements in technology have made it impossible to go a day without some kind of interruption that's why I so love the story of the teacher who asked her class, what does the DC in Washington, DC, our nation's capital, stand for? And one little girl said, oh, I know, I know, dot com. <laughs> Has anybody here ever lived in Washington, dot com? Well, can we be honest enough to admit, here in the beauty of this sanctuary at San Marino Church, and this church is so gorgeous, but can we be honest enough to admit this morning that sometimes the interruptions in our life are quite poignant. I've been a pastor for over 40 years, and I've had many a family whose life has been interrupted by two words. It's malignant. Or by four words. I am an alcoholic. Or by six words. Honey, I lost my job today. Now, if ever there was anybody who understood interruptions, it was Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, his life was constantly being interrupted. He was interrupted by people's needs and by people who were blind and lame and paralyzed. And his life was also interrupted by the disciples and their immaturity and, and their, their, the conflict with the Pharisees that he was constantly in. But in this story today, in Matthew chapter 9, his life, his ministry, his teaching of the disciples is interrupted by five words. Five words that no parent ever wants to say. My daughter has just died. Unless I miss my guess, there's somebody here in San Marino Church or maybe somebody here in San Marino, California, who's had to say those words. And if you've had to say them in your life, we never expect our children to die before we do. If you've had to say those words, our hearts and prayers go out to you. Maybe you know someone who's a dear friend who's had to say those words, and you've been with them in their time of need. But those five words, my daughter has just died, are just excruciating words to say. Bodie Miller, the Olympic skier, and his wife Morgan had to say those words recently last month. In Orange County, California, their family was out at a swim party, and they were talking to guests, and their 19-month-old daughter Emmy, a beautiful blonde little girl. I saw her picture on the internet and she's a beautiful little girl and she wandered off into the swimming pool and she drowned. And Bodie Miller and Morgan had to say those words, my daughter has just died. And Bodie Miller writes, never in a million years did we think that we'd ever have to experience something as excruciatingly painful as the death of our daughter. His grief is still fresh. It's only one month old. And Jairus in the story, the leader of the synagogue, his grief was fresh when he went to Jesus and he knelt before him in scene one of a little three-scene drama in our scripture today. 
And seeing one, Jairus, this leader of the synagogue, kneels down before Jesus and says those five words, my daughter has just died. I think he said them with deep feeling and deep emotion, but then he took a deep breath and then he said, but if you will come, oh rabbi, if you will come and put your hands on her, just touch her with your hands, she will come alive. Now, in order to understand the significance of this, we have to understand that a leader of the synagogue was not a rabbi, but he was the administrative lay leader of that synagogue. He was in charge of all the finance, all of the business administration, all of the building and grounds. He was in charge of all of that, including who was going to be in the worship service, who was going to provide the music. He was really a respected leader in that synagogue. He was in charge of everything. The only thing he wasn't was the rabbi, but, but other than the rabbi, he's in charge of everything there. He was also an Orthodox Jew. Now, you know from your study of the Bible that the Orthodox Jews in that time in history didn't take Jesus seriously. In fact, they were offended by Jesus. They thought Jesus was a heretic and a blasphemer. And they had their eye on him. And they wanted to get rid of him. And so they were watching every move that he made. Now, imagine this leader of a respected synagogue of Orthodox Jews who sets aside all of his interpretation of the law that he's ever known, all of his thoughts about Jesus being a blasphemer or a heretic, and he hears these stories of Jesus healing people, the blind and the lame and the maimed, and he also heard that he had fed 5,000 people and not far from them in Galilee, and so Jairus, the leader of the synagogue, goes to Jesus and risks the ridicule of all of his friends and colleagues in that synagogue. He risks ridicule and he kneels down before Jesus and he says, my daughter has just died, but if you come and lay your hands on her, she will live. Imagine an Orthodox Jewish leader of the synagogue who believed that in this itinerant rabbi that there was power over death. That's scene one in our little drama. It's a shocking scene. Scene two is that Jesus gets up and leaves the teaching. He's teaching his disciples. He's been interrupted by Jairus. He takes seriously that interruption. He leaves his disciples, and he goes and wanders on the way with Jairus to Jairus' home. And in scene two, there is a woman who has been hemorrhaging for 12 years. Mark tells us a little more about this, and Luke tells us a little more about this. The woman with the hemorrhage for 12 years has tried everything she could possibly think of to be healed. She's gone to every doctor, every medical expert she can. We know people like this who've gone to, to every medical expert they can, and nothing has helped her. In fact, she's been made worse. And do you know that Leviticus 15 says that if she has this hemorrhage, she is ceremonially unclean. She is ostracized from the community. And she can't be around anyone, really. She shouldn't be in this crowd. The reason the crowd is following Jesus is in Galilee, everybody knew everything. People lived close together in that time. And, and they, they were so close that, that if you would sneeze in one home, you'd say, Gesundheit in the other, down the street. I mean, everybody lived close together and everybody knew everything. And, and they knew Jairus' daughter had died and they knew he was coming to Jesus. And so when Jesus got up and walked with him, people wanted to do it. And word spread like wildfire. And everybody came and they walked with him. Imagine going into the Rose Bowl game over in Pasadena or the Rose Parade and you're, you're so close together, you could hardly move. And that's the way I picture this crowd coming along. And this woman with a hemorrhage for 12 years who's been ostracized by the community, she's ceremonial unclean. She can't go anywhere. 
and she reaches out and touches the hem of Jesus' garment. If I would but touch his cloak, I could be made well, she thinks in her mind. She doesn't dare say it to anybody. She's not supposed to speak to anybody. She's ostracized. I have the privilege of sometimes taking the pastors I work with to the Sea of Galilee in, in, over in Israel in Palestine. There's a town called Magdala. There where Mary Magdala is from. And there's a beautiful synagogue there and, a, and a, a shrine, a cathedral. And in that cathedral, it's right on the Sea of Galilee. It's gorgeous. There is a mural. And the mural is of this scene with this woman touching the hem of the garment. But when you first look at the mural, you wonder what this is. It's just a group of legs and feet and sandals walking along a sandy road. And, and then you see a little hand, a little tiny hand of a woman kind of reaching out through the legs and over the feet and just touching the hem of the garment just like that. And Jesus, in the midst when the woman touches the hem of his garment, she doesn't even feel worthy to interrupt Jesus like Jairus did, the leader of the synagogue. She is so ostracized. She's so out of it. She, does, she feels so lowly and worthless that she can't even interrupt him. So all she's going to do is touch the hem of the garment and the hope and the belief, the belief that he can make her well. And she touches the hem of the garment. And here's the amazing part of the story. All these scenes are shocking. But in this shocking scene, Jesus stops. And he says in Mark's gospel, power has gone out from me. The disciples wonder, well, how, what do you mean power has gone out from you? He said, somebody touched me. They said, what do you mean somebody touched you? How would you know somebody touched you? There's this crowd, everybody's jostling together. Of course someone touched you. But Jesus says, no, power went out from me. And the woman knew it. She couldn't even look Jesus in the eye. And Jesus stopped and he looks at her and he calls her my daughter. Now think of that. This woman feels worthless. She feels out of it. She's ostracized by the community. And the Son of God calls her my daughter. And he's saying, you're not worthless. You're worth something. You're a child of the living God. And she's healed. And he gave her back her life. Edwin Markham has written a poem called Outwitted. And in that poem, he tells how sometimes we in society tend to exclude people, which is what religion sometimes does, but that God brings people in. Listen to this short poem. He drew a circle that shut me out, heretic, rebel, a thing to flout. But love and I had the wit to win. We drew a circle that took her in. Jesus was drawing a circle that took in this woman. He gave her back her life. And she was healed and made whole. That's the shocking scene in scene two. And then in scene three in a little drama, they're then on their way back to Jairus's house. Notice Jesus interrupts. He interrupts being with a synagogue leader to be with this poor woman who's an outcast and to restore her soul. Notice he interrupts the flow of going to the synagogue leader's house to be with this poor lowly woman. And in scene three, they're now on the way to Jairus' house. They arrive there, and there's a big commotion. All these mourners are there. In the Jewish custom of that day, the mourners did several things. First of all, they rent or they tore their clothing to show the anger and, and the, the break that's happened in their life. They tore their clothing. Secondly, they mourned and they wailed and they sobbed. 
They even hired professional mourners to come in and lead the wailing. And finally, they've played the flute. It was the symbol of death. It was the musical instrument of death. They hired flute players to come. Even the poorest of the poor had to have at least one paid mourner and, and one played, paid flute player. But in this scene, probably as a synagogue leader, there were many mourners that were paid to help out with the grief and many flute players that were paid. And they're all carrying on. There's a commotion. And in the midst of it, the shock here is Jesus says, stop. The girl is not dead. She's asleep. And the people are so shocked, thinking someone has power over death, that they laugh. It's kind of a laugh of embarrassment. They didn't know what to do, so they laugh at him. And Jesus puts all the people outside. He comes inside. He takes the hand of the little girl. And he says, in Mark's Gospel, Talitha kum, little girl, get up. And she did. And she was alive. And the story spread all over Galilee. T.S. Eliot said every now and then, life drops an unavoidable question at your door. This passage today has two unavoidable questions I just want to mention briefly. I believe there are unavoidable questions that don't come from life. I think they come from God. I think God brought us here today to hear these two unavoidable questions and to consider them and to think about them and to wrestle with them. The first unavoidable question is, when interruptions come our way, do we know where to turn for help? It sounds like such a simple question, and it is, except that Jeff O'Grady's been saying for recent weeks, I've heard a number of his sermons along with my wife Suzanne, and He's been saying that it used to be years ago, 98% of all people in America believed in God, and, and over 90% prayed regularly, and now the statistics are that only 60% of people in America are praying with some regularity. And church attendance is way down, Jeff's been giving us all these statistics. But see, it used to be we knew where to turn for help. Jairus, the synagogue leader, knew where to turn for help, and the woman who'd been hemorrhaging for 12 years knew where to turn for help, but do we know really where to turn for help? And, and do we turn to God? See, so many people in our society turn to the little gods of the society. We build our life on sinking sand. Money, sex, power, prestige, alcohol, drugs. Those things are not ultimately going to satisfy us. What God says is that only a relationship with God can ultimately satisfy us. That's why St. Augustine said our hearts are restless until we find our rest in God. Do we know where to turn for help? And are we willing to ask God for help? Jairus knelt down and risked the ridicule of his, of his colleagues in the synagogue and asked Jesus for help. And this woman with a hemorrhage reached out and touched the garment. She put herself in a position where she was able to receive God's help. So question number one is unavoidable. Do you know, do, do I know where to turn for help in time of trouble? And do we turn to God? And question number two, are we willing to change the way we look at interruptions? Because God wants to have a vastly different way we look at interruptions than the way we normally look at them. In order to understand what God means, we have to look at the etymology of the word interruption. Inter means into, and rumpere in Latin literally means break. Interruption really means to break into. Someone breaks into our life. Interruptions for a follower of Jesus 
is an opportunity for God to break into our life. Contrast that with, with disrumpere, disruption, means to break apart. Sometimes if an interruption doesn't go well, if an interruption gets to us, gets under our skin, we, we are broken apart. We are disrupted. And God wants the interruption to be an invitation for us to let him into our life. But so often it's a disruption. It breaks us apart. Can I be honest with you and say that sometimes I don't handle interruptions very well? Even though I'm a preacher and teacher, I don't always handle interruptions well. I'd like to handle interruptions better, but I relate to Jimmy Fallon, the leader of The Tonight Show, who says, my life has been one big obstacle course with me as the chief obstacle. Sometimes I just get in the way of myself. Like a few months ago, I hate to admit this to you folks, but I was in my office in Atlanta, Georgia, ministering to pastors and directing this Macedonian ministry program. And I had a conference call in about 25 minutes coming up and I was preparing for that. I was gonna lead the conference call and it was on, on video, so I wanted to be ready for it. I was trying to finish up one email and get ready for the conference call and my executive assistant came in and said, Tom, uh, Doris is on the phone and, and, and she wants to talk to us. I said, gosh, Shannon, I'd like to talk with her, but I, I just can't now. I've got this conference call coming. I said, yeah, I, I know, I know, but she really wants to come up. And I said, well, you know, could after the conference call, I'll call her right back. I'll come down and see her. And so I said, please, just, I can't be interrupted right now. So he goes back and, and uh, I thought, this is great. I'm going back to work on my email and finish up. This is very important work I'm doing. And, and Shannon comes back and said, Tom, Doris is on her way up. In that moment, I was not experiencing the abundant life. <laughs> I was fuming and steaming and fussing around, and, and I said, oh, well, why did you let this happen? I'm upset with Shannon, I'm upset with Doris, I'm upset with myself for getting upset. I'm steaming around the office, so I go out of the office, and I go down to the end of the hall to the elevator where I know Doris is gonna come up in just a few minutes, and I'm, I'm mad that I'm interrupted. I got this conference call I gotta get rid of. Don't they know this is an important call? And, the elevator door opens and Doris comes out of the elevator with enthusiasm like she always had. She said, Tom, you are so wonderful to take time to see me. I thought if she only knew. And she said, Tom, it's Kathy. I said, what, what do you mean? She said, have you heard about Kathy? I said, no. She said, Tom, Kathy had a stroke. I said, oh no. She said, she's paralyzed. She can hardly speak, she, she can't walk, and she's in the hospital. And I just talked to her family by the phone, and her family members said that Kathy wanted me to come and, and wanted you to pray with me. And then I'll go and I'll be with Kathy and I'll pray with her. But, but we wanted your prayers there. Well, see, at that moment, I didn't feel worthy to pray with anyone. But in that moment, God interrupted my life. God interrupted my selfish, self-centered display of immaturity in wanting to get on the conference call right on the dot at 2.30, and I wouldn't let myself be interrupted. And, and God broke into my life and reminded me that there's nothing more important than people. So, I took a deep breath, I called on God for help, I prayed for Doris, I prayed for Kathy, I apologized to Shannon, my executive assistant, and I got on the conference call and I asked them to pray for Doris and for Kathy. 
And it changed the whole atmosphere of the call. And I realized sometimes the interruptions disrupt my life and I get so mad about them. But if I can just relax and let God in, a crisis is an invitation to a deeper walk with God. Are we willing to change the way we think about our interruptions and to see them not as a terrible thing, not as disrupting our whole life or our whole day or our whole week, but to see them as an invitation to walk more closely with God? Henry Nouwen, the great writer and author and teacher at Notre Dame and Harvard or Yale, you've read many of his books, Nouwen said, I used to complain that my life was constantly being interrupted until I realized that the interruptions were my work. Let that lean against you a little bit. The interruptions were my work. What if we saw the things that come our way, the interruptions, that sometimes can be a nuisance and an annoyance, is an opportunity, an invitation to let God in, not be broken apart by them, but to let God in. I just close with a thought that I've been in a PhD course lately, not a literal PhD course at a university, but I met a, a young woman at a church where I was preaching some weeks ago here in Los Angeles. And I was touched by the beauty of her violin playing. She was a gifted violinist and she was part of an orchestra in a church where I had the privilege to preach and I, I noticed her music and the music of the orchestra. And afterwards, I, I went up and I was co commending all the orchestra as many people were. And, and commending particularly this young woman whose name was Yi about her, about her violin playing. She was a gorgeous violin player and a radiant joy when she played the violin. You could just tell she was loving the violin. And, and someone said, well, you should ask Yi to tell you her story. And several of us sat with her after church and she told the story over coffee that, that she was a gifted violin player as a young girl. She grew up in Taiwan and her parents gave their life savings to send her to the United States to study at the Juilliard School of Music. And she had played at Lincoln Center at Carnegie Hall and she was on her way to make a name for herself and to make a lot of money as a professional musician. And then she contracted an illness brought about by a stroke. And she realized that her nervous system wasn't functioning properly and her spinal cord wasn't functioning properly and she could no longer be precise with her movements on the violin and her career went right out the window. And I found myself saying, when he told me this, I found it blurting out, oh, ye, I'm so sorry. She said, actually, don't be sorry for me. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, I don't want you to think that I'm a, I'm a religious fanatic. I, I don't want you to think that I'm, that I'm too spiritual, but... but but God came to me in my hospital bed. I, I don't want you to make too much of shit, but God came to me in my hospital bed and, and God healed me. She said, not of the illness. I'll have that forever, as long as I'm alive, but God healed me of my resentment and my anger and my bitterness. And I realized that I'm not on the face of the earth to make a name for myself. I'm not on the face of the earth to make money. I'm on the face of the earth to make a difference. And I now got the coolest job that I think God opened the door for this cool job. I used to live in New York City at, where I was studying there at Juilliard. And I got a job at the Mount Sinai Medical Center. But I now live in Los Angeles because the weather's better for me out here with my condition, my spinal cord, and, and my nervous system is better out here in the warmer weather in Los Angeles. 
But she says, I still work from outside a hospital and I'm director of technology. And I've created this wonderful network for children who have serious illnesses to actually make music and write songs. It's called the Kids Zone Network. And they produce their own television program. They make music, they have songs, and it's unleashing their creative energy. And we play a game called Broadway Bingo. And we actually call Broadway actors and actresses to come and sing to the children and be with the children and be with them. And it's the coolest thing ever. And you see why I say, I was on the face of the earth to make money and to, to make a name for myself, but you see why I say making a difference is so much better? I'm making a difference every day of my life in the lives of hundreds of children. And when I saw ye saying those words with joy, I realized that I was seeing the face of God. Well, my San Marino friends, everybody here is going to have interruptions this week. The people going on this Malawi mission trip are going to have interruptions. All of us are going to have interruptions. The question is, will we allow these interruptions to disrupt us, tear us apart, ruin our day, our week, our month, our year, our life, or will these interruptions be an opportunity, an invitation for a deeper walk with God. The choice is up to us.